I was doing some reading in preparation for this Sunday's service. As one of the things I read was with regard to a person's last will and testament. And it said, I, John Smith, I forget the name, being of sound mind and body, spent it all. There's nothing left for you. As you probably well know, a last will and testament is a legal document that communicates a person's final wishes as they're getting ready to depart this world. Final wishes pertaining to their, their possessions, their interests, their dependents, their beneficiaries. But what must take place in order for a will to take effect? That individual must die. When that individual dies, then that will takes effect. Turn with me, if you would, to John 13, 31. John 13, beginning at verse 31. Jesus, in this last section before He gets ready to go to the cross, has a heavy Trinitarian emphasis with His disciples. And so what I would like to do is just skim through some of this so we could get a 30,000 foot view, as it were, a glimpse into Jesus' last will and testament. John 31 and 32, Therefore, when He had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and will glorify Him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little longer. You will seek Me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you where I am going, you cannot come. Turn over to 14.1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. Jesus said to them, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. From now on, you know Him and have seen Him. Philip said to Him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know Me, Philip? He who has seen Me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in Me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on My own initiative, but the Father abiding in Me does His works. Look at 15 23, and as you're passing, notice verse 16. 14, 16, I will ask of the Father and He will give you another Helper that He may be with you forever. He abides with you and will be in you. I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Verse 20 of chapter 14 and then 15, 23. He who hates me hates my Father also. And we're starting to see there is this inseparable union between the Father and the Son. Verse 26 of chapter 15, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He, there's personhood here, He will testify about Me. And John 16, verse 7, and following. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. 
But if I go, I will send him, the helper, the Holy Spirit, to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify Me. For He will take of Mine and will disclose it to you. All the things the Father has are Mine. Therefore I said that He takes of Mine and will disclose it to you. Do you see this tightly knit, inseparable union between these persons of the Trinity that part of Jesus going to the cross is so that we can be recipients into this same love, into this same family, into this Trinity. And then if we look at verse 28 of 16, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. And then all of chapter 17, basically. Verse 3, This is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. Verse 5, Now, Father, glorify Me with Yourself, with the glory which I had with You before the world was. And if you were with us yesterday morning, you you remember that there's a couple different glories that are going on here. This is the glory that He had before the world was. Not one that was bestowed upon Him in time. Verse 9, I ask on their behalf, the ones that were given to Him, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom You have given Me, for they are Yours. So there is a particular people written in this last will and testament. Verse 11, I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. Verses 22 to 26, The glory which you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Isn't that beautiful? You've loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Isn't that just beautiful? Isn't that just beautiful? The last will and testament, true God of true God, who needed nothing. Indeed, need is a creature word. We have no need of anything. Or He has no need of anything. We have need of all things. Stooped down. 
we who cursed his name to bless us, to bring us into his family. Indeed, Jesus did have to die for this to take effect, and it did take effect. Well, what does this have to do with our scripture in Ephesians? Well, if you turn to Ephesians 1 with me, what we're going to do is we're going to look at verses 3 to 14 this afternoon. Verses 3 to 14. We're going to take a step back and we're going to look at the forest. We don't want to get lost in the trees. When we circle back around in the weeks to come, we'll go in and look at the trees, but we need to step back and see where we are and look at this beautiful doctrine that is just bulging out of this passage. In fact, 3 to 14 is one sentence. In Ephesians, there's eight lengthy sentences. 3 to 14, 15 to 23, chapter 2, verse 1 to 7, chapter 3, verse 2 to 13, 14 to 19, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and 11 to 16, and chapter 6, verses 14 to 20. Each one of those is just one long sentence. Because what, what you would do in Greek is you would talk. And if you've noticed, when we talk, it's much different than when we write. And so they would try and take the same method of their speaking and write it down. When we speak, if you've ever taken something and you've recorded it into dictation, when you're just talking normal, you've got to go through and you've got to edit it because you've got a bunch of ands, and, because you've got this one big thought that you're trying to lay out in a linear fashion with words, and that's what Paul's doing here. However, in order for us to really grasp the richness, we even have to back up a little bit further from the forest and do a cursory understanding of some important doctrines. As some of you that have been with us for a long time, this will be a good review for you. But we'll start with the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity. You notice as, you, as we read through this, verses 3 to 6 is about the Father. Verses 7 down to 12 is about the Son. Verses 13 and 14 is about the Spirit. So the first thing we need to affirm is that we are monotheists. We don't believe in tritheism. We don't believe that there are three gods. We believe that there is one God eternally existing in three persons. Deuteronomy 6.4. I'll be reading through quite a bit of Scripture, so if you want to take notes on these, now would be a good time. Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Speaking with regard to His unity. Isaiah 44.8. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? God says, I know of none. 1 Corinthians 8.4 Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God but one. Indeed, James says in James 2.9, You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. It's not enough merely to believe, is it? Consequently, Luke 8.28, the demon, the demon-possessed man, seeing Jesus, cried out and fell down before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other? Jesus, 
Son of the Most High God, I beg you, do not torment me. Do you remember when Peter fell before the Lord and said, I'm not worthy? Bowed down before Him? It's the same word. Even the demons come and bow down before Him and call Him Jesus, Son of the Most High God. In fact, they recognized Him first, didn't they? You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons believe and shudder. It does them no good. What's missing with these demons? Love. Love. And we can only see that as we step back and we we view this big picture, standing from outside of Scripture and looking in and having the whole counsel of God to look through, seeing this forest and not getting lost in the trees as Eve did. This is why we, we need one another. Because we may think that we're loving when in fact we're not loving. And we can be easily mistaken. And we may be sincere, but we may be sincerely wrong. As Thomas Boston said, some men love God just as Jacob loved Leah when he mistook her for Rachel. Some men love God just as Jacob loved Leah when he mistook her for Rachel. It's the love of an idea that doesn't really have a substance. So not only must we believe, we must also love, but not only must we believe and love, but we have to make sure that our belief isn't just sincere, that our love isn't just sincere, but, but it's set on the proper object. We must love and worship God in spirit and truth with the family of God, lest we inadvertently mimic the demons who bowed down before Him, who called Him holy, who called Him Son of God. So as we dig deeper into looking at these truths of the Trinity, let this not just be something that resides in our cerebral area. Let this not just be an intellectual exercise where we try to memorize these verses for a pop quiz. Let this be something that sinks into our soul because this, this is different from any other religion. There is no other religion There is no other book that speaks to these glorious and beautiful truths. Old Testament hints to the Trinity. Genesis 1.26. Now as I'm reading these, if you want to turn to Genesis 19. Genesis 1.26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Part of being God's, in God's image was to rule and to have authority as God rules and has authority. But you notice here it says, let us. Genesis 3.22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Genesis 11.7, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. We notice there's some sarcasm going on in these, these last couple of passages. They're building a tower up to Babel and Babel up to God. And it's so tall that God has to come down to look at it. 
But what we're noticing here is the implication, us. Genesis 19.24. Then the Lord, Yahweh, rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from Yahweh out of heaven. What do we see there? One Yahweh, two persons. There is a Yahweh who reigned Yahweh, who reigned fire from Yahweh in heaven. However, the doctrine of the Trinity is primarily a New Testament doctrine. There's no way that we could search through the Old Testament Scriptures and come to the doctrine of the Trinity apart from the New Testament. And so, as we look at the New Testament, we see, and this is by no means meant to be exhaustive, this is just to give us a cursory understanding. Romans 15.6, deity is attributed to the Father, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is both God and Father. 2 Corinthians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Deity is attributed also to the Son. Deity is attributed to the Son. Acts 20.28 Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. Did the Father die on the cross? No, that's Patropassianism, isn't it? That's a Trinitarian heresy. Romans 9.5 To them belong the patriarchs, And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. Hebrews 1.8. This is a beautiful passage of Scripture to take your Jehovah Witness friends to. But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That's a beautiful construction in the Greek showing that God is Christ Jesus and Savior is Christ Jesus, that the two are one and the same. In the New Testament, deity is also attributed to the Holy Spirit. We saw when we read through John's Gospel that he has personhood. It's called him or he, which is bad Greek, but great theology because the word pneuma is neuter. So it should take a neuter article. It should take neuter pronouns. But it doesn't. It takes a masculine one because it's speaking of a person. In Acts 5, 3, and 4, Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit 
and keep back some of the price of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it then that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but what? We know this one. But to God. And then, if you wanted to note these down, you can look at these later. Compare Psalm 95, 8-11 with Hebrews 3, 7-11. through And compare Isaiah 6, 8-10 through with Acts 28, 25-27. And compare Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34 with Hebrews 10, 15 to 17. And so what practical applications can we draw from this? Is it just merely apologetic? Do we just learn these things so that we can try and defeat the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses and the Oneness Pentecostals? This is why we must meditate upon Scripture. This is why we fellowship and meditate upon Scripture. In fact, in the Old Testament, time and time again, we're commanded to meditate upon Scripture, carrying the idea of sitting there with the Word, going over it, being so enthralled with this Word and so lost in the beauty and the depth of the Word that we lose track of everything around us. You ever lose focus and your mouth starts moving? And somebody goes, are you talking to yourself? No. Well, your mouth was moving. That's the idea of meditating. Meditating on the Word. Think about this, though. Without the doctrine of the Trinity, we would not know God as Father. Without the doctrine of the Trinity... We would not know God as Father. Because if He weren't eternal Father, and then He's Father now, He would become something that He wasn't. And He would change. He would be mutable, no longer immutable, subject to change. And he wouldn't be God. And his promises couldn't be trusted. Because he says, I, I am God, I change not. Oh, yes, you do. You became Father. No. But our Bible says he is the eternal Father. He has always been Father. And that is why he can be our Father and adopt us into his family. Because He is a fountain overflowing with love and with grace. And He calls us into Himself. Without the Trinity, God could not be loving. Love is a transitive verb. It demands an object. I love. You're waiting for it, right? What do you love? What is the object of your love? Now consider Allah for a moment. Because one of his 99 names speaks to that of who is loving, one who is loving. From eternity past, being a one person, one God entity, Allah, on what or on whom did he set his love and affection? 
Love demands an object. Consequently, each person in the Trinity has always loved and been loved by each person in the Trinity. The Father has always loved the Son. The Father has always loved the Spirit. The Son has always loved the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit has always loved the Father and the Son. The Spirit has always been loved by the Father. The Spirit has always been loved by the Son. The Son has always been loved by the Father and the Spirit. The Father has always been loved by the Son and the Spirit. Eternal love. See, God had no need to create us. Fullness, even relational fullness in Himself. Isn't that beautiful? When we begin to to meditate on the truths of the Trinity, it's so rich. It's one of the beautiful doctrines that makes Christianity so unique and so different from everything else that has been pulled up from the ground, from pieces of wood that we fashioned in our hearts to bow down and worship. You think about it's the works, as we'll look at, the works of God, things that we can praise Him for. This is called the doctrine of inseparable operations. The doctrine of inseparable operations. That's what we see going on here in Ephesians 1. And I want to show you that this is how the Trinity works. How the Trinity works. Always toward the same end. There's no division in the Trinity. The will is tied to the nature. There is one will in God. Jesus Christ had how many wills? Two wills. Why? He had two natures, human and divine. One person, without mixture, without confusion. But since God having one will, there's always one goal. There's always agreement. There's always work toward the same end. Yet sometimes there's a different function toward achieving that same end. We see it here with election, redemption, and sealing, protection in Ephesians 1. But let's take a few more doctrines. What about creation? Creation. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We know that. Psalm 102.25, of old you, God, founded the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. And of the Father, the Scripture testifies in 1 Corinthians 8.6, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things. And we exist for Him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through Him. And of the Son, it also testifies again, Colossians 1.16, For by Him all things were created, both in the heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. And Hebrews 1.2, In these last days, has spoken to us in His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also, what? He made the world. Of the Spirit, 
Does the Scripture testify that the Spirit was active in creation? Oh, absolutely. Genesis 1-2, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And Job 26-13, by His Spirit, the heavens are made beautiful. With regard to the creation of the universe, we see each person of the Trinity working towards the same goal, operating inseparably, just as we saw as Jesus was illuminating the minds of His disciples with that inseparable union that He has with the Father and with the Spirit that we would be brought into after He accomplished one of the things He came to accomplish, purchasing our redemption, purchasing redemption for those whom the Father has elected. Well, what about the creation of man? Genesis 1.26, and God said, we read this, let us, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds and sky, cattle, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Genesis 2.7, the Lord God formed man from the dust in the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. And we could go back to Colossians 1.16 and Hebrews 1.2. All, for by him all things were created in the heavens and on the earth. Remember, visible and invisible. What's outside of that category? Nothing. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Job 33, verse 4, The Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Isaiah 54, 5. For your husband is your, singular, maker. It's actually plural in Hebrew. Whose name is Lord of hosts. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel who is called God of all the earth. Well, we have Christmas upon us too and we're about to celebrate the Incarnation. Was that an inseparable operation of the Trinity? The Father sends the Son. John 8.42 Jesus said to them, if, if God were your Father, you would love Me, for I proceeded forth and have come forth from God. For I have not even come on My own initiative, but He sent Me. Galatians 4.4 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son born of a woman, born under the law. The eternally divine Son, the Word of God, sent by the Father, condescends to take on human flesh. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled with us. And we saw His glory, glory of, as of the only begotten, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Philippians 2, 6 and 7, who, although existing in the form of God, that glory, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking on the form of a slave, of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. He did that Himself but the Father sent Him. And the Holy Spirit creates and mends 
The Father sends, the Son condescends, and the Spirit mends. M-E-N-D-S. The two natures. So they are two distinct, inseparable, without mixture or confusion, into one glorious person. Matthew 1.18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by what? Or by whom? By the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1.20, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived, begotten, in her is of the Holy Spirit. The incarnation. What we celebrate this season. A work of the Father. A work of the Son. A work of the Spirit. And what about the death of Christ? Of the Father. The Scriptures testify. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? There's a richness and a beauty. There's a depravity in that too. On our part. But a richness and a beauty. For God so loved the world that He gave. He gave His only begotten Son. God sent Him. God gave Him. God did not spare Him so that each one who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. Well, what about the Son? John 10, 17, and 18. For this reason the Father loves Me, because I lay down My life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from Me, but I lay it down on My own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I've received from my Father. Luke 23:46. Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands, what? I commit my spirit. He gave up his life. No one took it from him. In perfect sovereign control. It's amazing to think that Jesus, the God-man, while being born with Mary, holding all things together by the word of His power, holding every molecule in her body together, she needed His divinity to hold all things together. And He needed her humanity to nourish Him with milk. And on the cross, the people that would come to crucify Him needed Him to hold all things together. To hold together the wood. The One that created the trees. The One that created the ore that they mined to make the spear, to make the nails, to make the hammer, to make their clothing. The One holding their hearts with life as they pound the nails in. Perfect sovereignty. Holding all things together. John 19.30 Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. You may know that word. Tetelestai. Beautiful word. It's in the perfect. Which means it's happened and the effects continue into the future. We don't need another sacrifice. It is finished. 
And the effects carry on into the future, even to now, because it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. No one took it from him. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Friend, can you say that and it be true? Can you say that Christ has loved you and gave himself up for you because he didn't give himself up for everyone? Only those for whom the Father gave him. Of the Spirit, the Scripture testifies. Hebrews 9, 13, and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve a living God? There is no other sacrifice that God will accept other than this sacrifice, Christ through the Spirit, the eternal Spirit. What about the resurrection of Christ? We were doing some evangelism down by the waterfront, and one evening we got like three pairs, I think, of Jehovah Witnesses, which was kind of an odd collection of them. And they're, they're more, more apt to spend time with you if they meet you at your front door when they're doing their works, than if you meet them out and about and want to talk about things. They're not on their, they're not on their mission right now. They're not earning their works. So they're like, hey, I'm busy. I got stuff to do. But one of the questions that came up that I was asked was, who raised Jesus from the dead? I said, well, that's a good question. The Bible says, the Father did, the Spirit did, and He raised Himself. And the daughter replied to me and said, that's impossible. You can't raise yourself from the dead. You're not being logical. You have to think logically. If you're dead, you're dead. You can't raise yourself from the dead. Well, you can if you're God, if you're the God-man. And she said, well, where does it say that in the Bible? So I'd love to show you, but first, let me ask you this. When I do show you that, how are you going to change your thinking in your life based upon this scripture? See, and you know, we, we can look at them and we can say, yeah, they do that. Where do we do that? Where are we told so many scriptures having to do with a particular matter and we do our best, do theological gymnastics to explain it away so that we don't have to submit to it, so that we can continue in with our desires? Even good desires, but we make them sinful, right? Acts 2.24 But God raised him up again. This man, delivered over according to the predetermined plan, purpose of God, whom you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men, God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Impossible. 
God raised him up. And of the Father, the Scripture testifies, Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Did Jesus raise God the Father from the dead? No. God the Father is the one who raised him, Jesus Christ, from the dead. The Father raised him from the dead. And of the Son, the Scripture testifies, one of them we already went through, for this reason, John 10, 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again, so that I may resurrect. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I've received from my Father. And the one that I took the Jehovah Witnesses to, John 2, 19-21, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it took 46 years for us to build this temple and you think you're going to raise it up in three days? But they did not know what? That he was speaking of the temple, his body, and of the Spirit. Scripture testifies, Romans 8, 11, but if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. It's a Trinitarian act. What about our resurrection? The resurrection of believers. Romans 6, 4 and 5. Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Because we have been united with Christ, as we'll look at even more deeply as we carry on through Ephesians, made us alive together with Him. We have been tethered, as we talked about, to Christ. So when he died, we died. When he was buried, there's a finality to our death too. When he was raised, we were raised. But we still carry around this body of death. And so we don't experience it in his fullness, but that's why we're able to be called holy ones. That's why we're called new creations in Christ. John 5.21, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. John 11.25, Martha with Lazarus. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me will live, even if he dies. Romans 8.11, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells within you. These beautiful truths. The Trinity, active in all of these operations. Turn with me to John 14. John 14, verse 16. The indwelling presence. Who dwells within us? Is it just the Spirit? Or is that also a Trinitarian act? 
John 14, 16. Our Lord says, I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper that He may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Colossians 1.27 To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is what? Christ in you. The hope of glory. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that is and that you are not your own. Have you ever stopped to reflect on these deep truths? Or even to dig and to mine into the Scriptures to try and understand and comprehend? Because what is eternal life? That they may know you, the only true God. And you know, eternal life isn't just time, it's quality of life. Who doesn't live forever? Do those outside of Christ not live forever? Are we annihilationists all of a sudden? Or do we believe that the Scripture says from eternity to eternity? And so we recognize whenever you see eternal life in the Scripture, it's not merely talking about time. It's talking about quality. Not so much quantity. Yes, it is eternal. I'm not saying it's not. But why doesn't it ever say that non-believers will have eternal life. They live eternally because it is the quality of life. It is the quality of life. So why would we not dig deep prayerfully to behold our great God? Yeah, the secret things belong to the Lord, but what? Those things that have been revealed belong to who? To us. We have the Trinity living within us. Working within us. If you're in Christ, Christ is in you. Along with the Father. Along with His Spirit. Now, let's look at Ephesians 1. Stepping back, chapters 1 through 3, 
the high calling of the church. Chapters 4-6, to the high conduct of the church. We've already looked at the opening, a theologically rich and deep opening in verses 1 and 2. And now we look at this section from 3-14 to where Paul praises God for His effectual, His efficacious spiritual blessings. We see the extent of the spiritual blessings in verse 3. And we see the establishment of these spiritual blessings in verse 4 to 14. In 4 to 6, it's the Father's election. 7 to 12, the Son's redemption. And 13 and 14, the Spirit's protection. But notice this blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. This isn't the most popular health, wealth, and prosperity passage, is it? Because he doesn't say every blessing, does he? He says every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, not just heaven, but everywhere in the unseen. Do you know that when we gather together as the church, it is an affront to Satan? When we gather together to worship this triune God, Do you know when we sing that these are songs of victory? Songs of victory that Christ has accomplished all, that death and Satan have been defeated, and that our songs and our prayers ring through the heavenlies as a statement Christ is victorious. And we recognize Christ is enough. He is sufficient. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died. And what? And that He died for me. And we gather together to worship this triune God. And it is a statement in the heavenly places of Christ and His glory and His supremacy and His victory and our allegiance to Him. And we turn and we bless God. Not that we add anything to it. Like when we glorify God, we're not keeping glory onto God, but we're ascribing to Him what is due His name. What is due His character. And so how can we not bless Him? He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us with every Spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Not apart from Christ. In Christ. Apart from Christ, we have nothing. He is our life. He Himself is our peace. And we'll look into these a little bit more deeper, but just to get the breadth of it. Look at the establishment of spiritual blessings. The Father's election, verses 4-6. to What is the basis of this praise? Election. Election is the basis of the praise. Just as He chose us in Him, the Father chose us in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Not even a foundation was yet laid for the world. And the Father has chosen His own to be in Christ. The love was set upon us then. We don't earn God's love. 
Christ didn't come to make us lovable. Before the foundation of the world, the Father had set His love on His own and said, Son, this is our mission. That we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. We'll get into why that should be with verse 4. The only, just a brief overview, the only time Paul starts with a preposition, he begins this kind of thought with a preposition, is when he says, in whom? In whom? Verse 7, verse 13, you'll see, in him. And if you have the Nazbe, you'll have a footnote. And in verse 13, you'll see two in hymns with footnotes. It's the only time he starts something new. All the other prepositions are subordinate to the other clauses. So it should read that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, period. He, the Father, he's expanding on the basis of this praise now, predestined us to adoption as sons, as sonship. You know, there's some translations today that say sons and daughters. They do things like that. You know why that's you know why that's bad? Because it actually takes away from the blessing. Because of the position that the son had, that the daughters did not have. Even if you are a woman, but you are in Christ, you have the position of sonship, which is higher than daughtership. So don't minimize the blessings that God has given to you if you're in Christ by saying, oh, sons and daughters. No, it's sonship. That, that is a special office. That is a special level, if you will, of blessing. Sonship. Daughters would be down here. So if we said to be sons and daughters, now we've got two different classes going on. That's not what Paul does. He says male and female, if you're in Christ, you've been appointed to sonship. You're in this class because of Christ. So the basis of the praise is election before creation in verse 4. The expansion of the praise, predestination to sonship, adoption. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. Why? According to the kind intention of His will. Because He's kind. To the praise of the glory of His grace. Here's the goal. The praise of the glory of His grace, which He the Father freely bestowed on us in the One who is beloved, in His beloved Son, in whom He's well pleased. And then we see from 7 to 12, the Son's redemption. The Son's redemption. And again, it starts out with a basis for the praise. Verse 7. In whom the Beloved, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us. Isn't that a beautiful word? He lavished these things on us. Redemption, forgiveness of sins, this is the basis of the praise. And then he, he goes in a little deeper here and gives us this aspect of wisdom in verses 8 to 10. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will. 
according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things in the earth, in Him. Isn't that beautiful? It would be the church. That we will reign with Him. We will be with Him. Provided what? Provided we suffer with Him. If you're not suffering for Christ, you need to check the Christ that you follow. Because you may not be following the right one. You may be like Jacob, loving Leah because you thought she was Rachel. But all these riches, all this lavishness, all this grace, blots out any pain from suffering. Because the worst is over. Christ took that on Himself. That is the redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses. How long would it take us to pay off our sin debt on our own? You know, when you're working 10-hour shift, you're nine and a half hours in, you look at the clock and you're like, 30 more minutes. And it's been a rough day. It's been a rough week. And you're like, 30 more minutes. It's almost over. And you get that hope and that, that thrill. That's not in hell. There is never that expectation of ending because it never does end. But He bore that on Himself on the tree. Not just so that we wouldn't have to. Christ is not our get out of jail free card. Christ is our life. He is the one whom our soul loves. When we study the doctrine of the Trinity, when we, when we look at the Father, when we look at the Son, it should motivate our hearts to love Him. How could, we, how could we not love Him? And then when we come to a temptation and a trial, do you know why we fail? Because we desire and have affections more in that moment for that sin than we do for our Savior. We would much rather spend time in fellowship and affection and love and money with the one who killed our best friend rather than spending that with our best friend. It is a battle of affections. It is a battle of desires. You know how to defeat sin in your life? Pursue and love God more. Spend time in communion with Him. How often do you guys go swimming in a pile of manure? How often do you guys boil some water and load up a bunch of manure and go in there and go swimming and bathe in it? Once a week? Twice a week? You don't ever because you don't have a desire or any affection for that, do you? 
That thought probably never even entered your mind. Ah, but there are other things that you have affections and that you have desires for that do enter your mind. And why do you submit to them? Because you take your eyes off Christ. And in verse 11, also we have obtained an inheritance. He is our inheritance, the possession of God, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things. Most things? All things. Some things? All things. After the counsel of His will. And then when you pair that up with Romans 8.28, God works all things together for good. For those who love Him and been called according to His purpose. This trial that you're going through even now, did you know it's because God loves you and He's growing you and He wants you to be like His Son. He gives us these trials so that we might grow. Christ learned obedience through suffering. And God measures out each one of our trials uniquely for us to grow us and to conform us into the image of Christ. And so that His power would be displayed in and through us and perfected because when we're weak, then we're strong because we're not relying on ourselves, are we? And who's glorified in that? God is. And what is the goal of this redemption even? To the end that we were the first to hope in Christ, verse 12, would be to the praise of His glory. You starting to see a little pattern here? The Father's electing work is to the praise of His glory of His grace. The Son's redemptive work is to the praise of His glory. Verse 13, the Spirit's protection. What is the basis of this praise that Paul has? In whom you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. What part have we played in this so far? We've been recipients of divine grace. Far be it from us to ever rob God of His glory by saying, I had a part in that. I know your Bible says no one seeks after God. But here I am, the exception to the rule. Robs God of His glory. We seek for Him after He's already sought us out. That's why these seeker-friendly churches are abhorrent to God because there's one seeker and his name is God. And he seeks after his own. Jesus is the one that seeks after his sheep. He'll leave the 99 to go and get the one. But look at this sealing. You were sealed. It's so beautiful to know that salvation is no part in us. Yes, we do have to respond with repentance and faith. I'm not minimizing that that has to happen, but repentance and faith are gifts from God. However, if it's not conditioned upon us, but it's conditioned upon a Father who has loved us from before the foundation of the world, can we fall away if we're truly in Christ? We have just as much a hand in walking away from the faith as we did in walking into it. It's all of grace. And so this promise of being sealed if you're in Christ, you'll struggle and you'll fail. 
But if you're in Christ, you won't ever truly fall away. And He will keep you to the end. Sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Verse 14, who is given as a pledge, a down payment of our inheritance. You can look at it as a wedding ring, as an engagement ring. This is my promise to you. And here it is. I will fulfill this promise. And I will come for you. And you will be mine and I will be yours. Given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. We're sealed until redemption. And what is the goal of this? To the praise of His glory. To the praise of His glory. Notice this. The doctrine of inseparable operations. The big umbrella. Salvation. Who accomplishes salvation? The Father? The Son? Or the Spirit? Yes. What part do we play? We receive it. We praise Him. We ascribe to Him the glory due His name. We love Him. We worship Him. We follow Him. Think about this also. Because God is loving, and because we're sinful and we've fallen apart, but we need to be redeemed to be with Him, this is, how, this is what His love looks like. He doesn't find some third-party scapegoat to pay our penalty. He does it. John Flavel has this, this beautiful picture of what would that discussion look like in heaven? It's called the Father's Bargain. And the Father says to the Son, My Son, here is a company of, of poor, miserable, wretched sinners who have entirely undone themselves. My Son, what, what shall be done for a people such as them? And the Son says, I will go, Father. Such is my love for you and my love for them that I will go and I will pay their debt. Let me be for them a surety because I see that should you require it of them, it will be to their undoing. Upon me, Father. Upon me, place it all. And the Father replies, but Son, know this. If I spare them, I will not spare you. You must reckon to pay the last mite. He says, content, Father. Let it be so. Bring in all your bills. Bring in all your bills that there may be no after reckonings with you. And we consider 1 Corinthians 8. He who was rich was made poor. He impoverished his riches so that we might become rich. That is grace. He didn't play it off on some third party. This fountain, eternally overflowing with grace and love, sovereignly and lovingly chose to save us and to bring us to Him. And conversely to that, there is no salvation outside of this triune God. 
If you have not come to that place in your life where Jesus Christ is everything to you, today is the day of salvation. If the Lord has pulled it all on your heartstrings, do not wait. For you know you've waited many times before. You've been pricked in your heart and you've been pricked in your conscience. And you know that you need to change. But you've pushed it off for fear of man or for other reasons. And you said, I'll do it later. But you never have, have you? You never have. Whether that be coming to faith in Christ or whether that be increasing in your love and your desire for Christ, I'll do it later. I'll do it later. But you haven't. And you know what the Scripture says. Now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. There is only one mediator between God and man. And that is the man Christ Jesus. And even the best things that you've ever done, the nicest things you've ever done, are garbage. You are bribing him with soiled garments, thinking that they're costly pearls. And he would take both you and your garments and cast you into hell. And there would be no after reckonings. That would be your reward. But in Christ, our lavish blessings, redemption, the best part is Christ. He is there. And even now, if you're pricked in your heart and your conscience and you have this desire to flee from your torment, but not to flee to Christ, friend, that is idolatry. That is idolatry. You must flee to Christ because He alone is worthy. And because you see Him as beautiful. You see the Word. You see yourself as a mirror. And you see you're broken and undone as we all are. But you look to Christ and you see Him for truly how He is. Beautiful. Lovely, altogether perfect, without spot or wrinkle, blameless, righteous. And you run to Him. For your heart can do no other. And you run to Him, leaving your sin, forsaking your sin, and grasping only to Him because you love Him. Ah, that is when you know that He has loved you. Because you never could have loved him unless he would have loved you first. And that is what the Christian life is. Pursuing Christ in love. The externals will follow. And you can't reverse engineer it. I'm not going to do these deeds so that these hard affections will come. They never will. You'll harden yourself in your idolatry. You must pursue Christ and him alone. Father, We thank You that Your Word is so rich, so deep. Lord, would that we had even more time to delve into these beautiful truths, these beautiful mysteries that were once hidden but now have been revealed for us. Lord, that You would have chosen us. 
not because of anything good in us, and that you would have paid our debt when all we did is revile you, and that you would make sure that we would stay with you because of your great love. Lord, work in our hearts that we might be holy and entirely devoted to loving you and in turn loving others, and that it would be obvious from our walk And Lord, that your truth would reign supreme in our heart. All praise and glory be to you, our triune God. We praise you, Father, for your electing work. And we praise you, Son, for your redemptive work. And we praise you, Spirit of God, for your protecting work. May you be honored and glorified. Our only hope and stay in Christ. Amen.